0: From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, in conjunction with KAZI Book Review, Writer's Talk presents OSU professor Caritha Mitchell's interview with Thierry Jones, author of the novel Silver Sparrow. Then, internet phenomenon The Blogist tells OSU student Meg Fallon how to overcome a fear of public speaking. And finally, Thurber House director Suzanne Jaffe previews this week's guest Mary Jane Clark. Stay tuned. Welcome to Black Lit Radio with Karetha Mitchell. And this month, Karetha will be featuring Tayari Jones, the author of the novel Silver Sparrow. Now, Karetha, why did you decide you want to feature Tayari Jones' novel this month?
1: This novel, I came across it at the time when the help was really, really big. And first of all, I chose it because it's actually a really wonderful read, but also because it came to my attention at the height of The Help, it really underscored for me how much The Help wasn't about black women's stories, like telling black women's stories in that novel wasn't at all about black women. And this book really does an extraordinary job of actually telling black women and girls' stories for their own purposes, like really exploring their own feelings, their own thoughts for their own purposes, not just someone else's, um, you know, coming of age or someone else's development. And I was really struck by how beautifully she did that. It's a really engrossing read. It tells the first half from one girl's perspective, the second half from another girl's perspective, And that ends up being really captivating because you find yourself completely on the side of the first girl until you start reading the perspective of the second girl. So I just thought she did a fabulous job and it's just a really
0: great read. Was there anything you learned from the interview that was uh, a, a real surprise about her writing process or the book itself?
1: Not really. It was just a delightful conversation. Um, I was definitely struck by what she had to say about um, what is considered universal, um, that really all writing is universal if we as readers can just understand that. And I thought that was a really powerful statement that kind of, you know, made the interview really interesting.
0: Thanks, Caritha.
1: Thank you. What a treat to have Tayari Jones on Black Lit Radio. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Tayari.
2: Thanks for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be on the show.
1: All right. Tayari Jones is the author of three award-winning books, Leaving Atlanta, about the child murders in that city from 1979 to 1981, The Untelling, about a woman seeking to overcome the trauma of her past, the loss of her father and baby sister in a car accident, and the book that we'll discuss today, *Silver Sparrow*, which is available in paperback, as an ebook, and as an audio book. *Silver Sparrow* has been recognized in more ways than I will try to enumerate. So I ask listeners to visit toyarijones.com. A few highlights, though: the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation recognized Toyari Jones with the Lifetime Achievement Award in Fine Arts. Silver Sparrow was named an honor book by the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. It was nominated for an NAACP Image Award and named one of O Magazine's favorite things for 2011. So, Tiari, many of the reviewers of this book have remarked upon the power of its opening lines. Quote, My father, James Witherspoon, is a bigamist. He was already married 10 years when he first clamped eyes on my mother, end quote. But what I find so impressive about the book is that it captures the perspective of young black girls coming of age, James's two daughters, Dana and Sharice. In other words, the circumstances are created by the choices that adults make, but the novel manages to really be about these girls' experiences. Can you talk about how you capture that perspective?
2: Well, you know, when I was thinking about this book, people often think that Silver Sparrow is about, is about bigamy because James has two wives, two daughters, same age, same town. But when I wrote this, I was more interested in the idea of sisterhood.
3: Mm-hmm. So I think
2: that's why I focused in on the girls. While bigamy... Now, it is a very kind of interesting topic when I tell people my book is about bigamy. Everyone knows, everyone knows someone or knows of someone, Mm -hmm. you know, in that situation where a man is discovered to have a secret family. But a far more ordinary experience is this idea of, you know, what we call half siblings when you Mm -hmm. have, when your father has children other than with your mother. And this may not even be under salacious circumstances, but there's that, that thing of having Siblings who both are and are not your siblings because you didn't grow up together. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: You know, we think about, we often think about, when we think of custody, we think about parents having custody of the children, and they do, but also, on some level, children have custody of the parents.
1: Mm
3: -hmm. So,
2: I grew up in a house. I had custody of my dad. I saw him every day. But my sisters, on the other hand, they lived... 500 miles away in Louisiana and mm-hmm. they saw him a lot less frequently and in many ways that shaped our lives our understanding of who we are and our understanding of family
1: Hmm. well what I find so interesting about even getting yourself to the point where you could represent these young girls perspectives is that um it really seems to me that you get to universal themes through the very particular experience um you know I've heard uh, you know, Diaz talk about how, you know, not many people have had the experience of being on a whaling ship, but nevertheless, Moby Dick is appreciated for its universal themes. And it seems to me that you've done the same thing. Whether a reader has been a black girl growing up in the urban South or not, we all can relate to the very human need to not only be told that you're loved, but to actually feel like you're loved. And that's one of the things that this book seems to tease out so much because it takes on sisterhood and because it takes on on these young girls' perspectives.
2: Well, also, I mean, I think this question of universality, I think that is only a, a question that is really posed to writers of color, mm. whether or not you're universal. Like, people, I've never heard um, a white author have to say, even if you're not white, mm. you can enjoy this. Mm-hmm. That's this. I think all, I th- actually think that all stories are universal. I think the reason we read stories are the ways that they both are and are different are both the same, sorry, the, way, the reason we read stories is because of the ways that they are the same and different from our human experience. I just think it's the way that people consume writers of color that sometimes they're shocked that they can relate because someone has told them that our experience is so different.
1: Hmm. That's, that's really a good point. You're right. It's up to readers um, not to let the so-called particularity of this experience become a barrier to them.
2: And you know what it's never and it's never the book itself. It's people's preconceived notions about the book.
1: Mm-hmm. Because
2: if you think about it, I mean, people read all kinds of things. Like reading is not about looking in the mirror, it's more like looking through a window. But mm-hmm. I just think that oftentimes when it comes to thinking about writers of color, that people think that it's like a mirror, a window that's been painted over and you can't possibly see through it unless you have some special person of color lens.
1: Hmm. Very good point. Thank you so much for sharing that and for kind of broadening the way that I'm talking about it. Um, one of the things that, again, because I was taken with the way that you got to the girls' perspectives, one of the things that seemed really interesting to me is the degree to which um, hair plays a big part in the novel. Um, but what I really appreciated is that even though it acknowledges that hair is a key way that black girls grow up grappling with beauty standards, this book really dove into how much hair can be about trust and intimacy. And so I was wondering if, um, you know, this was something that you wanted to explore, maybe that you hadn't seen black women's hair being treated that way in other representations.
2: You know, when I come to write a story, I try to look at what I believe is the truth of that story. And I do think that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion of black women and hair. And I was actually a little... I was aware when i was writing it that i might be covering some familiar ground but i was interested in hair in terms of beauty but also so many black women are entrepreneurs and it's hair you know it Mm has allowed women to have kind of financial independence laverne Mm -hmm. doesn't have a high school diploma but she does have this hair salon she has respect and she has the trust of everyone around her she has she has made something for herself,
4: mm-hmm. you know,
2: via the industry of hair. And I think we spend so much time talking about black hair as the site of pathology.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just
2: wanted to um, just look at it more in the way that I know hair but I was also interested in having Dana, the secret daughter, the dark complexion daughter, having this really long hair. I think we so often in literature, and just in our kind of rhetorical stance toward thinking about black women and hair, we have this like dark skin, short hair, mm-hmm. light skin, long hair. Light mm-hmm. skin, long hair equals all the privilege in the world. You know, unicorns mm-hmm. will dance at her feet every morning and mm-hmm. toss glitter in the air. And I really wanted to write about Dana. She and her mother are, are dark complexion. They have long hair, but I also wanted to write dark complexion women like Dana and her mother who are stone cold foxes. Yeah, everybody who sees them is like, those women are gorgeous. I wanted to write a black girl that wasn't tragic or black girls who didn't sit around all day wishing they looked more like Beyonce. Yeah,
1: yeah. You do that so well. Definitely
2: people, I mean, I think most black girls, most people, period, do not sit around all day obsessing about whether or not they're pretty enough. People have other things to think about in their lives.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so, but let's talk a little bit about silver girls, right? So silver girls in the book are defined as, quote, natural beauties, but who also smooth on a layer of pretty from a jar. So Dana is one of those silver girls. She's dark-skinned, really, really pretty. Charisse, the public daughter, sees herself as ordinary and not very attractive. Now, your title, Silver Sparrow, right, is bringing in this word silver, but I understand that Sparrow is dealing with the hymn, His Eye is on the Sparrow, So I Know He Watches Over Me. What else would you like our listeners to know about the title and how it might inform their reading of your book?
2: Well, you know, I originally was going to call the book Silver Girl, and I'm kind of glad that I didn't because with Silver Sparrow, I've had people... Um, write to me and say, "A man, he said, you know, I'm a Silver Sparrow's son. And mm. he used it to mean that he was born, that he, has, he was born, he was the child of a married man and another woman. You know, so he never got to know his dad, just like Dana is, you know, a secret child. So he was calling himself a Silver Sparrow's son. Mm. If I had titled the book Silver, Silver Girl, he would not have had access to that language. I see. So I think that that is the, I think you call yourself writing a book for a certain reason. You know, I call myself writing the book just thinking about my own family and this kind of idea of siblings. And when the book comes out and people start responding to it, you realize that, like I said, you can call yourself writing a book for one reason, and then you find out why you are called to the book. Mm-hmm. And I feel that with the title that I was called to that title, and I think it's because when I took girl out of the title, it just became more flexible. And I do—I was alluding to his eyes on the sparrow, because Dana, she is a silver girl. She's pretty, but, you know, she's got, she's got problems. She has to live her life in secret. But like the sparrow, you know, God has his eye on her, too. Mm-hmm. We are all precious, including Dana, including Sharice. We mm-hmm. are all
1: precious. Absolutely. And so that actually was part of what I wanted to get into next is, you know, authors live with their books for a really long time. You know, what about Silver Sparrow's life before it was published? How does that differ from the life now that it's published? Or maybe another way to ask that is as you've traveled with the book, because I know you've done a lot of traveling with it. What has been maybe the most surprising or most remarkable thing that you've encountered as you meet readers?
2: I have been really surprised by, one, how many Silver Sparrow sons and daughters there are out there. I meet them all over the country, from Durango, Colorado, to Washington, D.C., to Philadelphia, you know, to um, a small beach town in Oregon. Mm -hmm. You know, like, all over. And this is a phenomenon that crosses lines of race, class, gender. You know, every... This happens all the time, and these people who are born under these circumstances they live their whole life in the shadows there's such a stigma so that was one thing that I have been surprised at just finding out how many people live this way Mm -hmm. another thing that has really pleased me is that I have been very pleased by the diversity of readers Mm -hmm. I think we are breaking down some of the barriers and people I mean there's, there's still an uphill battle because people do have certain preconceived notions about books by writers of color, but I think we're making some I think we're making some headway here.
1: Wonderful.
2: I mean, like the fact that I went to Durango, I mean that's something, right? <laughs> I went to Durango on my book tour. And I had a full house and had meaningful conversations. So I think that I feel that as a nation it's slow but it's happening.
1: Wonderful. Well, um, As we close out, one of the things that I've noticed about um, how you are moving in the world is that you seem to create a lot of resources for other writers. Um, You blog about the writing life as a way of kind of giving advice. You support other writers with um, giveaways of their books or just by talking about their books. I also know that you're active with Girls Right Now. Can you say a bit about those activities?
2: Well, when I first... um Around the time my second book was published, I was working with a personal. I have a personal publicist, and she was suggesting that I start a blog. And I honestly was saying, "What's a, a blog? What's a blog?" <laughs> And she said that you need to figure out what you care about, because that's the only way you'll be motivated to keep the blog going.
4: Mm -hmm.
2: And so I um, said, well, this is one thing I care about. When I started writing, I was not in the loop, Mm
4: -hmm. as it were,
2: Mm -hmm. and there were a lot of opportunities that I was not able to take advantage of, because you cannot apply for what you've never heard of.
4: Mm -hmm. It's
2: that simple. It's about access. Mm -hmm. And so I think the internet is free. And so I wanted to set up this blog where it would be just information for people who were writing independently, but who wanted to apply for scholarships and fellowships and residency opportunities, but who had never heard of these things. So that's how I got into it, and it was a lot of fun, and nothing pleases me more than when people write to me, and they say, I'm going to a summer class, and I heard about it on your blog, or... I'm going to a residency. I didn't know they were free. Like a lot of people don't apply for things because they think it's expensive and they think they can't go. Even if they've heard of it, they think it's something for rich people. They think they can't do it. Mm-hmm. So I love posting about resources and ways that you can make it happen. And people who work, they're people who feel that they can't write because they don't have a room of their own. Mm-hmm. But I say, just because you don't have money, just because you don't have a lot of extra time because you're working, you have kids whatever, you can still write, yes. It will take you longer than it will take someone who has, you know, more privilege. But you can do it, and we can do it together.
1: Beautiful. Well, I know that one of the things that you tell the girls and girls right now is that if your voice isn't part of the conversation, the conversation isn't complete. To Yari Jones, we thank you for making our conversation more complete.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. Have a good thanks day. Thanks for
0: listening to Black Lip Radio on KAZI Book Review. I'm Hopton Hay. For more from Writer's Talk guests, visit www.writerstalk.org.
3: For Writer's Talk, I'm Megan Fallon. Jenny Lawson is an American journalist and blogger from Texas. She's the author of The Bloggist and advised Blogs, co-author of Good Mom, Bad Mom on the Houston Chronicle. Lawson has also written an autobiography called Let's Pretend This Never Happened. Welcome Jenny Lawson to Writer's Talk. Hey, this is Jenny. You've written about uh, anxiety in public speaking. How do you overcome these fears while still being so public on your blog?
5: Number one, lots of drugs. (laughs) Um, Number two, lots of therapy. Uh, Also, I think what's really helpful is the fact that... I can do so much socially while hiding in my house inside, like wearing my pajamas. Um, And and I think that that is such a wonderful thing that the internet has kind of gifted uh, to people with severe anxiety disorder.
3: Is there anything that you know now, blogging, that you wish you'd had known when you first
5: started or creating your blog? Oh, that is a good question. Let's see. I guess I would say, um, I mean, I, I think Shakespeare said itself, you know, to thine own self be true. Um, you know, write, write the things that you truly believe in and then don't back down. Um, because that was kind of the, one of the only experiences that I had that was a true and complete learning experience was... I wrote something, and um, everyone loved it except for, for like maybe one or two people. And so I was like, well, if you think it's offensive, I'll take it down. And then I took it down, and then all these other people were mad that I took it down. And so I, I just kind of got to the point where I was like, you know what? If I'm going to write something, I'm going to read it, and I'm going to read it three times in a row, and I'm only going to publish if I feel like I can completely back it up.
3: Speaking of To Thine Self Be True, your father was a taxidermist, and you're very open about your love for taxidermied animals. On the cover of your book, you have Hamlet von Schnitzel, which is a taxidermied mouse. Uh, Right.
5: Can you go into stories about traveling
3: with your taxidermied animals? I can,
5: yes. Um, So uh, the difference between my father and I is, uh, well, first of all, is that he's a taxidermist and I'm not. Um, But secondly, um, I love... Taxidermied animals that are dressed up, or are intentionally, or unintentionally weird in some way. Um, and I only collect ethically taxidermied, so they had to like die of natural causes and whatever. Um, but uh, I actually had to be the cover of Let's Pretend This Never Happened has a picture of this stuffed, um, this stuffed mouse wearing a Hamlet Shakespearean garb, and he's holding a a skull in his hand, like, you know, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well, ratio. And um, I, what was kind of awesome is I suggested that for the book cover, just as a joke. I was like, hey, I've got this dead mouse, maybe we could put that on the cover, that'll be easy to sell, and they were like, uh, okay, whatever. So, but I had to take it to New York so that he could get his, like, close-up shot. So I traveled with this dead mouse on my airplane tray, and I'm like, this is Hamlet von Schnitzel, and he's going to be famous, he's going to New York, he's got a photo shoot. And, of course, the people sitting around me were like, this woman is crazy, please move me. So um, it was kind of awesome.
3: So he was in your carry-on, obviously, if he was sitting with you. Yeah. Did TSA like, flag you down and like, do a pat-down? You're flying with a, a, a dead robot.
5: They were totally fine. The only um, one of my... And I've, I've, flown, I've flown with tons of taxidermied animals. The only one that I haven't flown with is... Um, I have this um, stuffed wolf. He died of natural causes of uh, kidney failure. And he is... It's like a wolf... It's his head and his whole body. And I was like, what a great security blanket this would make. <laughs> and I thought I should carry this on and wear this instead of a jacket. But it has these like enormous claws and these big teeth. And I, I just keep thinking one day I'm going to do this. I'm going to carry this enormous wolf on with me, this big wolf hoodie, <laughs> and, uh, and just see how people react when I'm in the, I'm in the airplane and I'm wearing a wolf. <laughs> Do you
3: ever do anything such as carrying a wolf uh, as, like, a blanket for, like, solely for the aspect of blogging about? Do you find yourself just doing things just for your blog?
5: Um, I, I don't think I've ever done anything that was just for the blog. But there have been some times when I've thought, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. And then I thought, but I could blog about it. And it kind of pushes me over. So there's never been anything that I ever was like, oh, I don't want to do this, but I have to do it for the blog. But, like, um, for instance, uh, Wolf Blitzer, which is the name of my taxidermied wolf, um, I wanted to wear him to uh, the Twilight movie because everybody always gets dressed up. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be, like, you know, team werewolf. (laughs) And so I, you know, get dressed up, and I'm, you know, wearing the whole thing. and, And it was, like, it was, like, Twilight had been out for, uh, for, like, four months. So it was just, like, me and one person in the movie theater. And I'm, like, dressed in this full outfit. And it was so completely ridiculous. And there was, a, there was a moment when I thought, this is kind of stupid. And then I thought, but that's what makes it awesome. And I was just like, yeah, I'm in it. I'm in it. I'm totally in it. And what was really kind of neat is that... Um, Stephanie Myers who wrote Twilight saw that post and thought it was so funny that when I went to speak, uh, where was it, in LA, she like flew out to LA to see me and was like, I loved your post with a little flipper I oh. was <laughs> like, Do you know who you are? <laughs>
3: <laughs> that is awesome. Yes. Uh has your blogging ever caused any problems in your relationship with Victor or with your friends?
5: let's see, um, it's never caused any problems that I know of with my friends um, because for the most part, if someone would have a problem with what I was blogging about, they wouldn't be my friend anyway. Um, with Victor, we do have um, a specific... Uh, rule, which is I am not allowed to blog about anything that we are currently fighting about, because pretty much no matter what, the internet has my back, and I could be like, you know what, I think that we should put kittens on, um, like it inside knives, and then we should like stab people, and and the internet would be like, that sounds great. So Victor was like, okay, here's the deal: we have to have stopped fighting about whatever it is. I have to have like no skin in the game. So. I was like all right okay that's fine and it was funny because one of the biggest posts that we had which was Beyonce the giant metal chicken <laughs> um it, it happened and he, Victor was really kind of I, I wouldn't say he was mad but he was definitely perturbed about the whole thing and so I waited like a week or two weeks before I ever actually posted it to make sure he was totally cool with it you know before it actually came out and it was so funny when it ended up becoming this you know viral sensation and it was you know shared millions and millions of times. And, and he was like, you are so lucky that I'm not still mad at you right now.
3: <laughs> so you're a hilarious person. This is just oh, by nature from reading your blog and from now talking to you. So how and when did you decide to write about your depression and your anxiety with like so much humor and going so public with it?
5: Um, I kind of felt like I didn't have any other choice. Um, when I was blogging and I was in a, like a really serious depression and could not, you know, leave the bed or leave the couch, um, I kind of felt like I was creating this false history by not being honest about the fact that I was going through these, um, these periods of either depression or anxiety disorder or um, impulse control disorder or, you know, these different things that I've struggled with. And so I thought... Everybody must know this anyway. It it must be obvious that there's something wrong with me. And so I just went on the blog and just said, hey, I'm mentally ill, and there it is. And if you need to leave, if it makes you uncomfortable, that's fine. And what was amazing is how many thousands of people came out of the woodwork and said, I have the exact same thing, and I've never said it out loud before, and it's so freeing and empowering to be able to to say it out loud and to own it because there's something about like hiding hiding the secret that makes it such a bigger monster than it really is and when it gets out in the light you realize oh that's just a little part of me like that's not all of me it's just part of me
3: lastly real quick how did you come up with the name the blog for your blog
5: uh, it's interesting because a lot of people think that uh, blog stands for blog goddess, and it totally doesn't. I was writing on another blog, and I was like, I don't understand why girls don't use the word blog S because it's, you know, actor, actress, mister, mistress, blogger, blog Every girl should be a blog And nobody used it. And I was like, okay, fine. If y'all aren't going to use it, I'll use it. So that's where it came from. And then everybody's like, no wonder you're called the blog goddess. And I'm like, that's not even close to why that, what that name is for.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jenny Lawson, for being with me today on Ohio State's Writer's Talk. Her book, again, is Let's Pretend This Never Happened. For Writer's Talk, I'm Megan Fallon.
0: I'm here at the Thurber House with Suzanne Jaffe and Anne Tuttle. And they are going to tell me today about the 2013 Winter Spring Evenings with Authors series. On January 9th, you have Mary Jane Clark, the author of Footprints in the Sand. Tell me about Mary Jane Clark.
4: One of the things that you'll notice about this whole season is um, it's all novelists okay, um, or fiction writers because one is short stories. And that's pretty unusual for us. Usually there's a mix, but um, this is all fiction. And Mary Jane Clark was a reporter for, I think it was CBS News news and decided to try her hand at writing. She had a very successful, she still writes a very successful mystery series about being a news reporter. But a couple of years ago she switched. She grew up her parents owned a bakery. And so her new series is about a would be actress who, in order to you know, pay her rent, decides to work in the bakery and she has an aptitude for sleuthing. So it's amateur sleuth, it's very charming. This is not your heavy hitting stick Larson kind of mystery. The character's name is Piper Donovan.
0: Piper as in cake piping. That's right. right. Okay.
4: And she always finds very different locales for weddings and so she ends up going to these different locales for the wedding and it gets involved in murder
0: okay since we're at the Thurber house so how many weddings have you hosted at the Thurber house that's something you do isn't it never never <laughs>
4: <laughs> no. well just, we we do we, we just had a wedding we had a wedding yeah. next door in Thurber Center okay But in here, no, the ghost wouldn't allow it. The ghost, okay. (laughs) But we do rent out Thurber Center for engagements, weddings, and... I think
1: we've had one or two rogue weddings in the dog garden. I think
4: you're right. Mary Jane will be um, doing an author's dinner before the event, which are great.
1: Yeah, the author's table dinners, um, they're a great way to get up close and personal with one of your favorite authors, or maybe an author you don't know very well and want to get to know better. Uh, You sit down in um, an intimate setting and have dinner with them. And I usually try and keep the crowds under 30 so it you know it keeps that that feel um but you can talk to them one-on-one ask questions they're very informal get your book signed ahead of time and then you get reserved seats at the reading so you don't have to worry about hurrying if it's a sold-out event the dinner is 45 dollars. that includes the reading and the reserve seating um, they always start at six and take place at thurber center
0: for more information about thurber house or any of our guests visit www.writerstalk.org this is doug dangler for writers talk keep writing